News. 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 New York City. F-A-Q. Welcome to a very special episode of FAQ NYC, the news podcast about the only city that counts. I'm producer Alex Brooklyn, here with host Professor Christina Greer. Hi there. Harry Siegel. Hello. And Ozzy Pabra. I'm here. Later, we interview special guest Mark Green. The man who's run for everything. Today, we are talking about the attorney general race. Donald Trump, and the New York real estate hustle. In honor of such a worthy theme, we are recording out of my rent-stabilized fourth-floor walk-up in the West Village. Everybody knows the landlords run New York, but they'll tell you something different. Are you the new landlord? New landlord? I, I am the new landlord. The world's money flows here to get cleaned by New York real estate, while the rest of us just try to make rent. In his column for the Daily News this week, Harry wrote, Some of the crimes in New York City... The crimes I'd wager account for most of the money stolen here aren't a bug, but a feature of life. Our real estate is built first to store and clean global cash, and only after that to shelter New Yorkers. Our laws and law enforcers have let financiers and developers mostly police themselves. It's not working so well. Now the state's top lawyer, the attorney general, that's someone who could do something about all that. But don't hold your breath. A lot of them would rather pay a lot of lip service to established villains Trump, Manafort, Cohen, Jared Kushner than actually do something about what's really going on in Albany. It's a really crowded race for an open seat. Eric Schneiderman, remember him? He was the Democrats' resistance champion and resigned early this year after the New Yorker reported on his shitty, if not criminal, treatment of women. Now there are four candidates competing for the Democratic nomination, and whoever wins that is going to be the next AG. There hasn't been a Republican in that office for 24 years, so come on. The race has been all about Trump. The field talks a lot about Trump, but doesn't say much about the swamp that made him. Paul Manafort, Michael Cohen, and Jared Kushner are all in trouble now, in part because they did New York real estate as usual. This real estate is very important to me. It's the most important thing I've ever done. It's just ruthless. It's ruthless. But mostly because of their ties to Trump. All the other state criminals still get a pass. Here's the inside track on all four candidates. And it's Tish James, the public advocate, coming out of Brooklyn with Cuomo Cash. She's speeding through the city without the Working Families Party. Coming up through the Mid-Hudson Valley. And the only stud on the race, Sean Patrick Maloney's there with Durst Organization money. And he's making a strong challenge, even though he's also running in another race for Congress. Here's Elliot's Pitcher's endorsement for Sean Patrick Maloney. Wait, here comes Everett Teachout. Also out of the Mid-Hudson Valley, we haven't seen her since 2014 and 2016, when she ran and lost. But she's making a strong challenge. The wind is at her back. And they're racing towards Albany. They're getting closer, they're getting closer, and look out, out of Harlem comes Lisa Eve. She worked for Hillary Clinton, she worked for Joe Biden, and she also has some wind at her back. Wait, here comes Jeffrey Teachow. She's pulling up ahead. She has the New York Times. She has the Daily News. She has Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The finish line is Albany, and here they come. Hi-ho, Silver. So, so the debate was 90 minutes. It was hosted by New York One. It was in, uh, it was at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And, and largely what they, what they spoke about was how would you run the office? And they all largely agreed that they would focus on corruption, that they would somehow find different ways of working with Albany to make it better. Mostly said some bullshit, right? Because when you're running for AG, the stuff AG actually does. Like the governor gives you things to do. You're defending the state. It's not mostly adversarial. There are all these cases you can't pursue unless the legislature allows you. You're not actually like in the judiciary, right? 
you, you are mostly in an instrumental role, and you're supposed to be handling this large office. But voters don't care about any of that, and that's never the conversation that they have. Well, most voters don't understand the role of the AG, right? I mean, Professor, first of all, what we, is the role of the AG? We weren't even thinking about this this office because it was pretty much assumed that Schneiderman would be the heir apparent. I mean, he was going to just cruise into re-election and there wasn't really going to be a conversation or a race. When we have these four individuals talking about what they'll do in relation to Donald Trump, but also in relation possibly to Albany, in relation to, I mean, at one point I think Tish talked about education. Um, so I don't know if many voters fully understand what it is. I think Zephyr's role of essentially saying, I literally wrote the book on corruption, so I would essentially be the people's lawyer for the state of New York. That should matter to you because we might try and uh, try Donald Trump in the state of New York. So that should that's why you should care. But the others didn't really um, make a case. This is mostly a functionary job. And so... Elliot Spitzer uh, became the sheriff of Wall Street by discovering this 1921 act that gave the attorney general very specific powers to do discretionary stuff when it came to Wall Street that hadn't been exploited before. And it created this new impression of the attorney general as, as a sheriff of Wall Street or a crusading figure who does their own stuff. That's actually very new, and it's not functioning what the office is about. But what the office is supposed to be doing, like voters have no idea about. And there's this uh, frame of Trump resistance, uh, obviously now, that begs the question, why the attorney general in New York law enforcement has never done anything about the sort of real estate crimes Trump and his people have been involved in for decades. This real estate is very important to me. It is ruthless. Suddenly, people are paying attention there, but they hadn't been. And in fact, when the Times endorses Zephyr Teachout, they're like, this is the most important race in New York, not the governor's race, which is their way of saying, damn it, it's going to be Cuomo. And then they whisked Prococo and all the other people who have gone to prison recently. And guess what? That was all federal prosecutors. Not one of them was a case, uh, you know, that was run by the attorney general. I thought it was a great debate. And, you know, I, I said this last night on New York One. I think the winner of the debate were the citizens of New York. I mean, there are, I would say, three very qualified women in this race. And they'll all do the job very differently. But if any of the three women are successful and victorious... Uh, September 13th and November. General election does not matter. I think that we are like suffering from a plethora of riches. I, now, you mentioned three qualified women. There are four candidates in there the race. There are four candidates in the race. What is your read on Sean Patrick Maloney? Congressman Maloney has decided to enter the race after seeing three qualified women in the race. He represents a congressional seat that is desperately needed by Democrats. In the Mid-Hudson Valley? In the Mid-Hudson Valley. Swing district? Um, and if he is victorious as attorney general, um, his seat very well could go to a Republican, damaging New York and also Democratic chances in Washington, D.C. Um, he's using his congressional money to run this race. You know, I think that there will be some men who cannot bring themselves to vote for a woman. I think that there are going to be some white voters upstate who can't bring themselves to vote for black women. Let's just say it's between Sean Patrick Maloney and Zephyr. I think there's some voters who can't bring themselves to vote for a woman who's pregnant. There's some gender dynamics where, just back up for a quick second, right? Donald Trump ran with an 11-year-old son for president. Many Americans didn't even know he had an 11-year-old son. Imagine if Hillary Clinton, at the age of 70, ran with an 11-year-old son, and we wouldn't know about it? These are things where we have to sort of really inspect our gender analyses, or lack thereof, and, and put him on this race. Harry, you and I were talking. You said Tish James is sort of not aligned with the current energy of 
the Democratic Party right now. She's running as an insider in a uh, in an insurgent year, and she's doing that because she got the support of Cuomo. Prior to that, she wanted the legislator to just give her the AG's position so she could run as an incumbent. And that comes with some benefits. It comes with labor support and it comes with money. But it also means she's making apologies uh, in this debate for the, the very bums people want thrown out. So in a year where there's fury about Albany, where Zephyr Teachout is running on anti-corruption, she's saying not all Albany politicians. And there's some very good people up there in Letitia. the debate. And that's going to be in every attack ad. Letitia James is saying that, right? Yes. And, and that, that's problematic. In the meantime, everyone was aiming their fire at Zephyr Teachout throughout the debate. Tish James kept uh, contemptuously calling her professor. And mm. <laughs> I don't think... Anybody landed a very clean hit, and certainly not in the opening 30 minutes, which is what counts the most. I don't think anyone landed a clean hit on Zephyr Teachout. And by the way, the other three candidates ended up spending more time attacking Teachout than Donald Trump, which says something about how they see the race. Teachout, she has the freedom of being like, I really don't like corruption. I really don't like the people in Albany. I really don't have institutional support. I don't have real estate money. So I can just say the stuff I think. And weirdly, Unlike in her last two times running for office, it looks like this just might be enough in a crowded field to put her over the top. A lot of Democrats are seeing Andrew Cuomo ahead in the polls against Cynthia Nixon and are saying, if we can't vote out Cuomo, we can vote in someone who is anti-Cuomo in a different office. That's Zephyr Teachout. That's Jamani Williams, Uh who's running for lieutenant governor. So this race, although the job doesn't necessarily mean counteracting the governor, they are looking at the candidates and acting as if they're judging based on that. I think that's spot on. (laughs) There you. Hats off to you, Ozzy. Because I think a lot of Democrats who are frustrated by Cuomo, who think that there are some real deep-seated corruption issues within his administration, who think that, you know, this entitlement of a third term is somewhat problematic. The, The list can go on and on. However, I think they're looking at Cynthia Nixon and realizing she peaked and she plateaued and this experiment is... It's over now, right? New York State has a budget of $168 billion. This is not a time for games. So, unfortunately, when you try and dig a little deeper with Cynthia Nixon, she's exposing herself to realize she understands that policy playbook forwards, but not necessarily sideways and backwards. I think her team, of which there are many brilliant women on that team, I think this is a case where the candidate has gone as far as the candidate can go. And I think New Yorkers are seeing that, where it's like, I don't like Andrew Cuomo, But again, we've got huge fish to fry. So that way, maybe if we know that he'll probably get in based on he does have a record and because Cynthia Nixon has pushed him to the left, he's done a lot in a short period of time to help progressives. Right. I think someone like Zephyr Teachout, because Tish so famously and and I would say possibly brutally abandoned the Working Families Party, that gives these progressives a real motivating factor to go with Zephyr. I think that this is a moment of sort of using the AG as a quasi-foil to the presumptive nominee in Andrew Cuomo. And, and I, and I want to note that we're recording Wednesday morning before the debate between Cuomo and Cynthia Nixon, which is taking place Wednesday evening. So by the time you hear this, there will have been a debate, and most likely there'll be a tweet from Trump saying God knows what. Adam Davidson is a reporter for The New Yorker. He spoke to another podcast, The Ezra Klein Show, about money laundering in New York real estate. Davidson sources said they can't go after money laundering in New York real estate because, quote, it would devastate the New York economy. So based on that, I decided to ask the candidates running for attorney general 
How was Trump able to operate so openly for so long in New York? Is Trump unique or is he emblematic of the problem? And how would each of those candidates police New York real estate as attorney general? Two of the candidates got on the phone with me, Zephyr Teachout and Licia Eve. Two of the other candidates, Sean Patrick Maloney and Tish James, emailed me their responses. Just a quick producer's gripe. I think it's important to note that Tish James didn't actually email her response until midway through us recording this podcast. But a person who's supportive of Tish James did call me to pre-spin me before Tuesday's debate. It was off the record, and it was an hour long. Zephyr Teachout? Zephyr, thank you for calling. Absolutely. So let's just jump right into it. I know you're at the airport. So the first question I have for you is, why was Trump able to operate so questionably and so openly for so long in New York? That is such a critical question. I mean, New York City real estate is at the heart of so much of what is wrong um, in New York. Not just New York, New York City, but New York State. Also, as we see now, you know, Donald Trump comes out of New York City real estate. It's this spine that connects everything from tenant harassment to tax fraud to Donald Trump. You know, real estate money is huge in New York. It's in 2016, it was uh, about a tenth of all the political money spent in campaigns came from New York City uh, real estate. And so while we can't always know the precise ways in which that kind of big money power influences people, we can say, um, this is the premise of your question, but we can say there's a big problem here. Yeah, we, we need to change uh, some of the laws in Albany, but even under existing laws, there is a huge amount of illegality going on in New York City real estate. There's been incredible reporting by Adam Davidson and others talking about uh, money laundering, a lot we don't know. And then the reports of tenant harassment, of tenants being pushed out so that developers can charge higher rates uh, are, are widespread. So I, I gotta give I gotta give the last Attorney General credit. Um, uh, about a little under two years ago, he brought in a great leader to the um, Real Estate Finance Bureau, and they started becoming more aggressive in investigations. But the New York Attorney General actually has to play a really key role here. And we, first of all, we gotta take on Donald Trump. But second, we don't want him to have another Donald Trump. And third, there's so many people who are so directly hurt by the illegal actions of New York City real estate, but then also by the ways in which um, big developers spend their money, spreading it across the state to really have a lot of power um, throughout the state. That gets me to my second question. Is he unique or emblematic of the New York real estate economy? Trump's corruption is totally unprecedented. Uh, This is arguably the most corrupt administration in history. And in some ways, it seems like that they uh, really don't understand the charge of corruption um, or certainly are willing to run roughshod over it. Uh, uh, but I got to say, when he was rising through the real estate ranks in New York, he was using some pretty typical tactics, you know, spreading around a lot of money, um, making sure he was donating to lots of campaigns, uh, rubbing elbows with the right people, um, being close to people in power, clearly not every uh, developer is crooked. 
and not every developer is Donald Trump. I mean, it's, I want to be totally clear about that. Sure. But I got. But, but at the same time, we got to we see this. You know, Donald Trump, the president, having come out of and built his power and built his networks of power in um, the culture of big money in New York City real estate. And I think that's really important. I think we have to, in New York, take a really hard look in the mirror at what role our acceptance of this kind of elbow rubbing, big real estate money, looking the other way, what, what, what that's meant. The, the current bureau is really moving in the right direction. But we've never really had a New York attorney general who's made taking on New York City real estate absolutely central. And to do that, you have to not take real estate money. Um, I'm the only candidate for attorney general who isn't taking real estate money. And this isn't like little trickles of money. This is a massive amount of money. Um, and they're giving this money for a reason. And they definitely want to maintain their influence in, in political and law enforcement circles. And, and that leads me right to, to my third question is, how would the real estate community be policed on your watch? Tax fraud and other fraud are rife across um, real estate and developments. Relatedly, there's a widespread problem of people being pushed out of their homes through harassment by landlords. One of the many tools that can be used um, in this area is under the executive law, which says the attorney general must, should investigate businesses who repeatedly commit illegal acts. So, you know, as the people's lawyer, the job is to investigate illegality, get those settlements, make sure the people who are the most hurt get, get the benefit. And working with community groups is going to be incredibly important. I think it's outrageous how New York City real estate has run roughshod over New York politics. New York City, big city real estate, big money in state Senate elections around the state, you know, upstate, everywhere. And the pain and suffering and inequality it is causing across the board just can't go on anymore. You mentioned Davidson at The New Yorker, and his reporting is part of what led me to ask those questions about real estate and Trump. He appeared on the Ezra Klein show, and he had said he heard from a former state official that there was a concern that if you investigate too aggressively New York real estate and the money laundering, it'll actually have a deleterious effect on the New York economy, and therefore that you sort of have to let a certain amount of it go by. I'm wondering if, if you've heard that argument and if you have any thoughts about the, the ripple effect of that. That's totally outrageous <laughs> as an argument, and there is no such thing as too big to fail in real estate. And basically, that's the argument I hear: is too big to jail uh, because uh, too big to jail, too big to prosecute, too big to investigate. Didn't work and led to the financial crash, and you know, arguably, our failure to prosecute, investigate uh, big real estate in New York has led to a democratic crash. And you're always going to hear arguments from those in power that threatening their power threatens the entire economy. But what's good for the biggest corrupt developers is not what's good for New York. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for taking the time out, and good luck. Hi, Lisa Eve. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well, Ozzy. How are you? Never been better. Okay. Uh, I know time is limited. You have a lot of events coming up. So let's just jump right into it. Sure. Uh, the, the first question I have is, why was Trump able to operate 
so questionably and so openly in New York for so long? Well, the reality is that with the exception, the glaring exception of the building that he owns in Midtown Manhattan, uh, he hasn't really built anything in New York City in decades. Uh, he isn't really seen as a, a meaningful, a real part of the real estate industry in New York in that way. He frankly is much more of a shady brand and marketing guy who has exploited Tam, uh, tabloid fame into, you know, a reality TV career. And I really appreciate your question because I know a lot of New Yorkers and people around the country have that question on their mind. What I will say to you, regardless of how much he has or has not been a part of the real estate industry, and he hasn't really been um, a part of it at all in the past uh, two decades, as Attorney General, I am going to go after aggressively con men of all stripes, whether they're running bogus charities like the Trump Foundation, which hasn't met in almost two decades, whether they are ripping off New Yorkers uh, with for-profit fake schools like Trump University, or whether they're engaging in any other uh, type of shady enterprise. Is he unique or is he emblematic of the New York real estate economy? Well, I don't believe he's emblematic, and I also don't believe he's unique. We've got bad actors in all sectors of our economy, and real estate, unfortunately, is no exception. And it's unfortunate because New Yorkers across the state, but particularly in New York City, are struggling so hard to find quality affordable housing, and we've got too many shady folks in the real estate industry that are making it uh, impossible uh, for them to achieve that, that dream that we all want. He hasn't really been a member of the real estate community in any meaningful way. Now, he's conned a lot of New Yorkers, including a lot of members of the press. And, you know, he's taken uh, folks across the region and the state uh, and the country for a ride uh, in terms of somehow conveying that he's this great businessman and real estate mogul, when in fact, you know, it's all about him using his name and his fame as much as possible. Uh, but it's really, frankly, a mirage. And uh, I am pleased. Uh, that the former attorney general did investigate and uh, prosecute uh, and seek compensation for New Yorkers who were conned by him and Trump University. I am so pleased to see that uh, Attorney General Barbara Underwood uh, commenced her investigation and now her litigation with respect to uh, the Trump Foundation, which has clearly violated state law in using charitable nonprofit contributions for his own personal benefit. So uh, I don't believe he's either unique, unfortunately, because there are other bad actors in the industry, but I don't believe that he's emblematic because he hasn't, frankly, uh, been a part of the industry to the extent uh, he's tried to convey that he has been for many years. How would the real estate community be policed on your watch? Well, I would make sure that the real estate community, whether you are a small player or a large player, that you're complying with New York state law and, frankly, New York City law. And to the extent that there is are uh, violations after violations of even New York City statutes, that is something that, as attorney general, I would aggressively investigate and prosecute. Even in the New York Times, when they, when they endorsed one of your opponents, they had 
a lot of encouraging words for you. You have one of the most impressive records or resumes of somebody running for this office in quite some time. I'm just wondering if you see uh, the path for your victory, if your campaign is sort of where you want it to be at this moment. Listen, I am proud that I'm on the ballot, not because one person did or didn't endorse me or a group of people in a room who are part of the party leadership did, but because more than 40,000 New Yorkers across the state, across the city from Long Island through New York City, the North Country, all the way to my hometown in Western New York, took the time to learn about my candidacy and sign their name on the dotted line. And with respect to the New York Times, I was very proud of what the New York Times said about my candidacy. They called it a strong candidacy. They talked about um, my litigation experience. I do, in fact, have more litigation experience in courtrooms across this state by far than any other candidate, from the Southern District of New York to the Western District of New York. They talked about my experience fighting in the trenches for social justice for more than 25 years as a lawyer for Joe Biden, as a lawyer for Hillary Clinton, as the first woman and the first person of color uh, to be the chief economic development advisor to a governor of the state in the state's history. Um, what they didn't mention, the case that I'm most proud of is a case where I represented every single woman incarcerated in District of Columbia prisons because of prison conditions they were living in. We had clients who did give sexual favors to guards because they thought that that was the only way that they could guarantee being able to see their children, something that they should have been automatically entitled to do. One of my clients literally had her leg shackled to a hospital bed as she brought a child into this world. And I'm proud to say that, you know, I just didn't file a lawsuit. I just, you know, I didn't go on television. It wasn't about press releases. It was about engaging in hundreds and thousands of really hard, strategic legal work, and we won. I was 29 years old when that case was commenced, barely 30 years old when we got unprecedented relief for these women. That gives New York voters a glimpse of the kind of lawyer that I was, and it gives you some sense of the kind of attorney general I will be. So um, I will ask your voters to give me uh serious consideration. I would be honored to have their consideration, their vote. Believe in Eve, vote 7A, Licia Eve for Attorney General. Awesome. Uh, thank you so very much and good luck in the campaign. Thank you so much and have a great one. To read the email responses of Sean Patrick Maloney is producer Alex Brooklyn. I'm going to try my best to affect that southern accent Chrissy was talking about. Ozzy Pabra will be read by Ozzy Pabra. Why was Trump able to operate so questionably and so openly in New York for so long? Listen, it's easy to say that campaign contributions protected Donald Trump. I'm sure that that's what people will say, and there is some truth to that. I think the dirty secret here is that there is a tremendous amount of white-collar crime and corporate malfeasance that is simply ignored or tolerated. There are at least two reasons for this. First, campaign fundraising has created a unquestionable coziness between politicians and the industries they are supposed to regulate, and that is certainly true of real estate. Obviously, coupled with that coziness is the fact that these crimes take more time and effort to prosecute, and investigators might be hesitant to take on a fight they could lose. So these types of crimes have just been downgrading in priority, and 
that allowed crooks like President Trump to get away with questionable business practices with zero real accountability. When I'm the attorney general, my office will prioritize these types of crimes because they are difficult, not in spite of it. The office of the attorney general is uniquely positioned to do something about these guys in New York City and around the state. The AG just has to make it a focus of the office. Is he unique or emblematic of the New York real estate economy? As I said, I think President Trump is emblematic of our approach to white-collar crime generally, and I think that is especially true of real estate in New York. There's a lot of money sloshing around in the system and way too many entanglements with regulators and law enforcement. It's about time someone does something about it. How would the real estate community be policed on your watch? The attorney general has an obligation to follow the facts and the law. And I can promise you one thing. When I'm attorney general, if those facts tell me you're committing a crime, I don't give a damn who you are. Shady landlord or real estate billionaire, we are coming for you. And what was it like to defend Fort Sumner? To read the emailed responses of public advocate Letitia James is co-host Harry Siegel. Hey, hey. Ozzy Pabra will be read by Ozzy Pabra. So why was Trump able to operate so questionably and so openly in New York for so long? Trump built his empire on real estate and at the foundation of his business model was discrimination. The FBI investigated claims of racial steering and the Department of Justice filed a lawsuit which was settled without any admission of wrongdoing. Perhaps this was Trump's first lesson of what later became a business model, breaking the law and making minor restitution as part of the cost of doing business. When the penalties don't touch the principal, when they threaten the business's livelihood, breaking the law is just a factor in a cost-benefit analysis. Perhaps it was more profitable to discriminate and pay the price of a consent degree than to follow the law. In some penalties for breaking the law around discrimination, rent stabilization are too low and enforcement is too spotty in New York to dissuade truly bad actors. Harry's punishing Tish James for getting her answers in late, clearly. I am. Is he unique or emblematic of the New York real estate economy? Trump is very much emblematic of the New York real estate economy. One need only look at yesterday's news to see that his own son-in-law shared a similar approach, in this case by falsifying building permits in order to conduct construction on rent-regulated buildings. This type of work is commonly known as eviction by construction. It's a problem that runs rampant through the real estate industry. There are going to be thousands of landlords who have business models built on forcing rent-regulated tenants out of their units in order to deregulate them. How would the real estate community be policed on your watch? This is long. The first and foremost change that needs to happen is legislative. The rent stabilization loopholes must be closed. We must eliminate vacancy control, change the laws around preferential rent, and a bunch of other stuff that actually has nothing to do with this office. Even absent those changes, I'm, I'm paraphrasing there to speed this up. However, enforcement of real estate abuses must be more aggressive, smarter, and better coordinated. So now she's like getting to the answer to the question that was asked about her office that she's running for. While the existing Attorney General's office has a real estate bureau and task force devoted to housing enforcement, needs to have a bureau dedicated to tenant and homeowner protections. I've spent much of my career protecting tenants and taking on unscrupulous landlords, etc., etc. So the Housing Protection Bureau will work with Housing Community Renewal, parentheses, HCR, and city agencies, including the Department of Building, DOB, and that Department of Housing Preservation and Development, which doesn't have um, anything in parenthetics for, although it does have an acronym, to investigate and root out the widespread fraud and um, harassment in the housing business, false registrations, illegal rent increases, fraud and deregulations, building permit applications to misstate tenant status, harassment, and discrimination. For too long, housing enforcement has relied on self-reporting and investigation by HCR with little enforcement, permit violations by parentheses, DOB, close parentheses, when I am attorney general, that will no longer be the case, and the hereafters of the foreclosure crisis remain. Modification scams, deed theft, and zombie properties undermine our neighborhood's health proliferate. We must root out scammers and work to enforce the zombie property laws to make banks responsible for upkeep, sick throughout, and shout out to whatever staffer wrote this. Are you running fast enough in order to go back in time and prevent Andrew Cuomo from endorsing you? 
Superman 2 is an underrated sequel. It could have led to an entire different era of superhero movies, but that's a conversation for another day and another office. Thank you very much. Special, Special guest, guest, Mark Green. Mark Green. The, the man, man who has run, has run for, for everything. everything. Anything you say now will be used against you in the okay, court so of public opinion. so you can repeat opinion. it now. So, you've, uh, Mark Green, you've run for attorney general in 06 with, against Trump, Patrick Maloney, Andrew Cuomo, and, two, and uh, Charlie King. You were city public advocate. You were almost mayor. Who are you going to be supporting for attorney general? Well, I haven't said yet, and I, could, I was waiting for either this podcast or time of my own choosing. If the question is, what would it be based on? Often in a race, you base it on quality, temperament, and who can win. In this instance, any of these four can win. The state is not going to vote for a Republican for at least of all attorney general. All four are incredibly well-spoken. Each has exper- relevant experience. And so it's a uh, close question. Sean Patrick Maloney is coming across as Elliot Spitzer. I'm a steamroller. I'm going to hit you in the head with a baseball bat. That was his metaphor. And Leisha Eve is, hi, you don't know me, but I'm Joe Biden and Hillary. That was Joe and Hillary. Tish is running with a very strong racial gender base in Brooklyn. Uh, notoriety, you know, uh, recognition rather, as public advocate. Uh, Zephyr Teachout is running on I Have the Weirdest Name, but also she is, in fact, before this race, a leading national scholar and professor on corruption. She's written the main book that other scholars and students read about the issue, has been a prosecutor. And so it's a, uh, this is the first time I've ever seen this, or at least in a long time. I'm guessing now that Tish James has the inside track because of the Cuomo embrace, and Zephyr Teachout, of course, the endorsement of the New York Times and the Daily News, and Sean, of course, with a lot of ads because he has a lot of money from the congressional uh, treasury, a three-way tie, nearly, at the end. It seems like the candidates are defining themselves, rightfully or wrongfully, based on their proximity to two things, Donald Trump and Andrew Cuomo. It seems to be that voters are sort of looking at this race as a way to cast a vote either with or against Cuomo by proxy of Tish James. I'm wondering if, if that's how you see the race lining up. Yes, I think a third is, is qualifications. None of them is already a well-known uh, prosecutor. Each has a pieces of prosecutorial experience. To take your analysis, yes, they're running against Donald Trump because of the political zeitgeist. And all of them are equally disgusted <laughs> by Donald Trump. It's hard to distinguish among them. They're very different when it comes to Andrew Cuomo. And rarely, if ever, you run for the office by saying, I'm not the governor. Bob Abrams, former attorney general for many years, had a very fraught relationship with Mario Cuomo. And on the Andrew Cuomo axis, it's helped Tish James enormously by getting almost all political clubs and political endorsements by people who think it's an easy endorsement to make Andrew happy and what the hell. Uh, Zephyr Teachout, though, in part, won the New York Times and the Daily News because she wasn't Andrew Cuomo, who himself has not been sued or indicted. Uh, uh, two top people with him have been co- convicted of felonies. And so when you say the words, I'm going to fight the uh, cesspool of corruption in Albany, you don't have to say Andrew's name. Legally, you can't. With Sean Patrick Maloney, I thought that his performance of, I'm going to put this in quotes, manhood, was really insulting to me. 
You know, first of all, I'm already insulted that he's in the race. We need him in Congress, and no one asked him to run. He just woke up one day and saw three highly qualified women in the race and said, oh, well, you know, these three hens need a rooster. And I'm really offended by that. I mean, I think that he will get a male vote. I think that there's still a lot of people in this country who are going to see three women with three non-traditional names and go with him. So that's one. You know, his his southern twang out of nowhere was really confusing to me. I think Zephyr... That's not a Mid-Hudson Valley <laughs> No, I was like, what is this? So the performance itself was offensive to me. I think it took Zephyr an hour to realize, like, hey, sweetie, you're the front runner. <laughs> When each candidate has an opportunity to ask another candidate a question and all three of her opponents chose her and you realize she's like, oh, oh wait, <laughs> I'm the one. It's like, right, the Daily News and the New York Times actually mean something and they recognize that. So, you know, for, for quite some time, she actually didn't even hit back when, you know, Lisa and, and Tish and Sean Patrick had some really one-two punches on Zephyr and she, you know, vaguely mentioned her opponents, but it took her a while to realize, sweetheart, they're coming for you. <laughs> so They went after alive. Teach Out by the end of the debate, more than Trump even. Is Cuomo's endorsement, Mark, at this point, like, is it actually a burden for, uh, for Tish James in this uh, sort of throw out the bums year and environment? And he seems like an untouchable bum. So this race seems like the place where voters can register their objections, maybe here in lieutenant governor. Look, uh, I don't want to evade your question. <laughs> it's, but. shall we say, metaphorically, it's a double-edged sword. Clearly, there are two real politicians in this race. Sean Patrick, no one asked him to run, Chris, you're right. Money made him run. Mm-hmm. I know how he thinks. He's a good guy, a very aggressive guy, extremely well-spoken guy. He has three to four million saved up from another race, which he is legally allowed to transfer. As on the as for the Cuomo double-edged sword, it clearly has helped distinguish Tish, which is a big deal in a four-person race. It has clearly now burdened her, because she is the brunt of a very simple narrative. Hi, I'm Zephyr Teachout. I am unarguably a champion against political corruption, as represented in this day in uh, in our primary by uh, Albany. And Albany is, as you said, Harry, a proxy for Cuomo. And in this case, in this state, uh, being a get-along candidate who is embraced by Andrew Cuomo, which is not simply an endorsement. When Andrew endorses you and he calls you in six months as attorney general, the call will be taken, the call will be respected. He doesn't play this game according to uh, informal rules. You know, he's he's a brilliant political thoroughbred. And so I think as a closing argument, Zephyr Teachout has the edge as validated by the New York Times and the Daily News, and she sh- I thought in the debate she, was, she came across as like a very sincere person. Some of the others were talking like they were in an, an arena with 10,000 people, and I, they were just yelling. Uh, <laughs> they didn't have their radio game there, uh, as yeah. you know so well. Their Ozzie. podcast game. And Zephyr Teachout came across like as a person. She was still, well, I don't know. But it was political malpractice by her to show her uh, sweet naivete, that she didn't use more often or more effectively the endorsements of these two papers. I ran for attorney general, 2006. 
Andrew Cuomo was running. Sean Patrick was running, but Sean was a a, a minor a candidate at that time. He, he's now. A Did you think candidate. he was helping Andrew Cuomo in that race? That is, uh, it's either an urban myth or true, and the answer is I don't know. Your point is that Andrew put him up because he was a gay Democrat who would take gay votes from me. I don't know that's true. And I'm only repeating, and I wouldn't have otherwise, seriously, Ozzy, except that you, you mentioned it. But basically, people don't run for a high office and tax their friends, family, themselves to help another politician. <laughs> it's a pretty arduous process. Okay. But the point I wanted to make is I started that race against a Cuomo, uh, and here we have a Cuomo on the sidelines. He was uh, 15 points ahead. His name, his record at HUD, whatever. Um, the New York Times endorsed me. It shifted 15 points in the polls within a week. Now, Andrew then had the money, the cachet and the father, to pull away, back away, and reestablish his lead. That's true. But here there is no equivalent of Mario and uh, his level of, of money helping the number two. So that endorsement was a booster rocket for Zephyr. Andrew now has a choice. Andrew Cuomo, that is. He goes all out. He calls bigger donors to give more money because right now is when you have money for ads or, or you don't. And uh, he campaigns with her or he gets arm's length because he knows he's a bit toxic. I don't know which of those two would happen. What we saw in the debate last night was a very big conversation, not just about money in the abstract, but money from the real estate industry in particular. Obviously, you know something about this, having run for a public advocate, there was the Bill de Blasio ads that mentioned you, real estate money, and things like that. I'm wondering if you can just explore the role and influence of real estate money in particular in politics. Well, uh, <clears throat> the uh, two leading business sectors in New York economically are uh, real estate and uh, media. Um, tech is coming along. We hope. Uh, I'm sorry. I left out Wall Street. Right. You've heard of that. Okay, so let's say it's Wall Street and real estate. I don't know the numbers, but I would have to guess that 10 to 15 percent of all monies raised by a Democrat would come from real estate because they they're organized. They have the real estate board called Rebney. Um, but there's a negative because they're looked on as rapacious landlords. I was public advocate for two terms and then ran a third time a cycle later against Bill de Blasio. We're fighting. And then an, uh, something happened that I, I actually, you can't be too uh, innocent in that, that business. My brother founded from a one-room office S.L. Green Realty Corp. God bless him. Today it has a market cap of 14 billion dollars. So when I ran for public advocate the last time, guess what? My brother contributed to me. And so Bill de Blasio ran ads saying Stephen Green is one of the most corrupt realtors in New York, and he's helping Mark Green for public advocate. I thought, wow, what if I had gone after Bill de Blasio's wife because she had once done something? I mean, my head would have been chopped off. What Family normally is off limits. He did it. It helped. Uh, because when people on the street would say, oh, you're in the pocket of real estate, I'd go, oh. Because most people wouldn't say that, but they would might think it. And so I guess that's fair by the rules of politics. Uh, when he won, the smart thing to do would have been to call me and say, look, it was a tough race. I don't know if I should have run that literature again and again and again. 
but, you know, let's go forward. He didn't. And I just thought that was unworthy. But when it's a, a brother or a wife, it's, you know, I would have thought uh, people would look more at the record. I'm not saying that was decisive. Right. But in this case, there's no relative, there's no Bloomberg-level money. And I think at the end, to answer your question, Harry, it's, I think message is stronger than money. Does the no family rule apply to how Spitzer's campaign for attorney general was financed? Elliot comes from a wealthy family, obviously. And I can now not recall money that he raised that helped him beyond his own. Obviously, he raised some money. I'm going to put this. Me. I'm going to put this in the newsletter. We'll go back to Greg B. Smith's reporting about this at the time. I know something about it. His father loaned him money, in air quotes, under oh. the table in both his races. Ah, yes, that's true. So, so that, that is what I had in mind. Yes, Elliot, and Elliot, who's a friend of mine, factually misled people yes. about where the money came from and was exposed as doing that, I think, after the race or maybe even during the race. Both, both races. When he came in last, his first time running, and when he won his second time, he did the same hustle after getting caught the first time with his father, quote-unquote, lending him money that wasn't disclosed until after the election and was never repaid. So that, Let me just say, yeah. Harry Siegel here is the best by far because he's the only investigative columnist in New York City. So you've run for lots of offices. I mean, that's because I'm persistent. That's what, <laughs> yeah. that, wasn't that good when we, she said yeah. that? Yeah. We had Tom Swazi last week who's persistent as well. I think that there's some gender dynamics there that we'll explore in another podcast. So in 2001, when you ran for mayor, Thinking back on that particular race, because we've talked about AG and we've talked about different races, do you have any regrets? Do you have any thoughts? Do you have any reflections on that particular race? Go to Amazon and order Bright Infinite Future by a guy whose face I shave. And it's a, a memoir about races because 2001 race has very little to do with the uh, AG race uh, because it's the only time I've ever seen a candidate, me, be 30 points ahead of a potential opponent and then lose uh, because Mike Bloomberg, by the way, is an extremely smart, capable person, period. Um, and the, uh, the aberrational combination of the impact of 9-11, which totally threw the race uh, askew, and $74 million, not $7.4 million, but $74 million, were unusual. And so the only thing looking back I, I can think of um, is if there had been a way like Bruce Willis in, in one of the Die Hard movies to steal all his money because it's in a vault somewhere on Wall Street or electronically erase it, I wouldn't have done it, but I would have been tempted. Other than that, uh, you know, he won by two points and it affected the history of the city. And and in, in the 06 race for Attorney General, Andrew Cuomo he sort of finished one of the last debates by saying, hey, Mark, your legacy from 01 is like this divisive politics. And, and, and he tried to revive that race, ref, referring indirectly to the Mark Green primary, to, to the Fernando Ferrer primary. I'm, I'm wondering... Runoff. Th- r- runoff. I'm wondering if you think that was an unfair sort of reviving of history and if that has sort of been something that other Democrats look at or think about in the back of their mind when they see a landscape of diverse candidates? Well, this is more personal than attorney general based, but uh, most people listening won't recall and never knew. 
But we had a very amicable four-way race with four credible candidates like now for a Democratic uh, nomination for mayor. Alan Hevesy, Peter Vallone, you and? Freddie Ferrer. One was a minority, Freddie Ferrer, and the primary was nothing racial, zero, because while Freddie Ferrer rightly ran on what he and Sharpton called a black-brown coalition, hey, that's normal politics. Uh, he came in, uh, in a, and we ended up in a runoff. It was during the runoff that some overstimulated people on both sides made it racial. Someone to this day, I don't know who, in Brooklyn handed out flyers making fun of Sharpton, who was very famous, and Ferrer, who had sought and gotten his endorsement. And so Ferrer's people said, oh, look, that's racial. I said, well, it is. It's disgusting. I denounced it. I said, whoever did it will never have a role in my administration. And people who know me know that. I didn't know, and I would never have approved. Later, a myth arose, like uh, Jews stabbed Hitler in the back kind of urban myth, that, oh, he won because he's white and Freddie's minority. Um, four years later, Freddie ran for mayor again. I endorsed him because I'm a Democrat. He was completely qualified. Um, but people have uh, kept that up. I don't believe it had a big role in the attorney general race. I think it was Andrew just, you know, grabbing onto something. But here's how it affects the current day. In Florida, I read that the, the white opponents of an African-American contestant went at it with each other, but were afraid to criticize him because it would lose or hurt their African-American vote. And so while I'd love to be a professor, like Professor Greer here, and say race doesn't matter, well, obviously it matters. And the way you handle it is the way I thought David Dinkins handled it. I was, I was then the most prominent white Democratic supporter of David Dinkins, who's African-American, was later first uh, a black mayor of New York City. And, and only. I'm sorry? First and only. First and only. <laughs> And so I went all over supporting him, uh, largely in the white community, because he was, you know, was getting uh, 90% of the black uh, community. And the way David did it is he is a very conciliatory, gentlemanly, interracial person. And he never said, vote for me because I'm black. But he said, we can make history. Well, that was about right. Both were. And he got a disproportionate share, there's a little too in the weeds, of the white Jewish vote, not the white out of borough ethnic vote, enough of the white Jewish vote to beat a guy named Rudy Giuliani. Whatever happened to him? I mean, I really mean whatever happened yeah. to him. He's yeah. doing pro bono work. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm going off on racial politics because people who don't know the history of 01 might say, oh, look, well, it didn't even happen there except the supporters can get a little uh, sloppy when the candidates know, know better. And will that play a role in the AG race when there are two African-American women and two white candidates at the same time that there are three women and one, <clears throat> excuse me, one male. One point, uh, Professor, I may disagree. I think the gender divide in the AG race will affect the race by a few points one way or another. But I don't know how many men there are who go, oh, I'm for the gay guy because I don't like women. I find that a little absurd, obviously. But, but how many people know that he's gay? I have not just outed him. 
No, no, no. He, he is Adam so. And he, he and the debate, it, it, he made he sure to say, to complicate things more, he's a gay man who's married to a lovely man, Rusty. And they have African-American children by adoption. Which he mentioned in the, in the debate. He mentioned it. And that's a plus, uh, in, politically. Racially, I have no comment. <laughs> but politically, I mean, look what it did for Bill de Blasio and Dante. And it's a little different, but it's baked in. But I think overwhelming all that is the message of Zephyr. Last question for you to round it out. One word to describe Andrew Cuomo. I'm going to put a dash between, and I said it earlier. Political thoroughbred. Mark Green, thank you so much. Thank you. How painful was all that? Not at all. <laughs> F-A-Q. This episode was recorded in Alex Brooklyn's apartment. And FAQ is brought to you by a grant from Civil, a blockchain company rewriting the economics of journalism. Trump may have tweeted by the time you heard this. Sweet. All right. I think that's everything. This was a very interesting mix of like nerdy and thorough and weird. News. 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 New York City. F-A-Q. F-A-Q.